Coming to you from the lab where they talk about guns, gear, training, and everything in between. Here are your hosts, Mike and Big Key, and this is The Gun Experiment. How's it going, everybody, and welcome to this very special episode of The Gun Experiment. This week, Keith and I discussed the nice Serpa v. Bruin decision with one, maybe two, Second Amendment attorneys. This episode is brought to you by Target Sports USA, the official ammo sponsor of The Gun Experiment. Be sure to check out their Prime membership, which gets you 8% off, free shipping on all ammo orders, and a whole lot more, all for $95 a year. And do not forget our other sponsor, On-Site Firearms Training, the official training outfit of The Gun Experiment. I just want to remind everyone that our regularly scheduled episodes will still air on the second and fourth Tuesday of this month and will be unaffected by the release of this special episode. That was very specific. <laughs> and as always, as he chimes in from across the table, my co-host Big Keith is in the house. Keith, how are we doing? I, doing well, man. I've, we've been like having a marathon hangout tonight. We started with a little uh, little neighborhood party-ish midweek funish time what do you call that i don't know i don't know summer summer fun summer fun yeah. well you you're, you're on summer fun i'm yeah. not so much on that but so anyway so we were supposed to do a live stream tonight and we were supposed to have two attorneys on and the live stream tech that we were using was Blame a cluster tech. fuck <laughs> and uh one of our attorneys can't log in so we're down to one attorney maybe two if he i pops feel in. i feel really excited that we get to say to like we have attorneys like yeah <laughs> yeah so let's get this thing going our guest slash guests this evening are no strangers to the second amendment or the gun experiment combined they have over 40 years of legal experience in various capacities for their second appearance on the show please welcome peter tillam of tillam and associates and joshua prince of prince law offices so right now we have peter peter how you doing I'm doing great. Good. Thank you for being here. I apologize for all the tech difficulties, and uh, obviously this will get listened to uh, after the fact, but uh, glad you're here with us. Listen, I'm happy to be here, and uh, quite frankly, I'm surprised when the tech works. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Listen, <laughs> I, too. I, I'm getting older and older. This tech is starting to like you know surpass me a bit. So That's uh, called a, a laptop mic? Yes, and, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you. Okay. So it is It is a shame. Uh, unfortunately, I think we lost uh, Joshua. Maybe he'll pop in if he gets the proper link and things work. But in the meantime, we have one uh, Second Amendment attorney, and that's good enough for now. So I'm happy to have you here. Well, I'm happy to be here. It's 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 an exciting time to be a Second Amendment attorney. Yes, it is. I, that I'll is bet. a that's that's an optimistic way to say that. Well, listen, I, I have to feel like if you're a lawyer, you just like law in general, right? I would so, agree. It, so yeah. just like looking over all the the stuff that's going on, you and I look at it like it's crazy, it's exciting, and and he's probably looking at yeah. it like it's a T-bone steak. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually spent two hours on the beach last week rereading the Bruin decision. So I guess that would qualify me as a law geek. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I had intentions of reading it, and I got distracted by the pool. Uh, I'm sure at this point, most people who are listening have heard about the NYSERPA v. Bruin decision, but in case they haven't, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that New York's law was unconstitutional and that the right to carry a firearm outside the home was constitutionally protected. Uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to explain, in your opinion, what makes this such an important and landmark decision. So why don't you take the mic? Well, thank you. So, I mean, this is a landmark decision, and one reason it's so landmark is because it says a lot of what the Heller decision said, but over the last 
uh, what is it, almost uh, uh, more than 10 years since Heller. I think it's almost uh, 15. Right. Uh, Heller hasn't really helped us because it's been so misinterpreted by uh, the lower courts. And it took a Supreme Court decision to kind of say that, that, you know, the lower courts have misinterpreted this. So I think this is a landmark decision because it talks about the extent of the Second Amendment and just how important the Second Amendment is. Uh, We knew from Heller that we had a right to possess a gun inside the home. Uh, although that was sort of the liberal interpretation that, okay, this only speaks to a constitutional right to carry a gun, to have a gun inside the home. Now we know for sure, explicitly, that you have a right, a constitutional right to carry a gun outside the home. And that right is for self-protection. That as an American citizen, you have a right to have a firearm on your hip to protect yourself. Yeah. From my my understanding legally with the Heller case was that it sort of brought us so far, but not far enough, which is kind of what you're saying. And this was sort of, I guess, the next evolutionary step in pro-2A legal decision, correct? That's kind of what you're saying? I I think that's right. But I think that the most important takeaway from this decision is not what it said about what the right is, but what it said about what the test is. If a government wants to pass a law to infringe to to burden your second amendment right what is the test how is a court supposed to analyze that that's important yeah and it's it's the most important because there was this whole issue about should we use intermediate scrutiny or strict scrutiny of course it's second amendment so they said intermediate scrutiny and then every court analyzed every gun law and said no it's constitutional because it regulates an important government function of public safety so, Peter, I, I do want to get to that idea. That's something we talked about when we had you on last. I do want to get to that. But before we do, you may not have the answer to this. I don't want to put you on the spot. But uh, so Keith and I are both pistol permit holders. Um, we've had them for a number of years, as I'm sure many of our listeners are. And I know you are as well. So what does this mean? Like if you have a pistol permit, it has now been deemed that they can't stop you from having a permit. It's, it's a shall issue now. So when can someone like myself or you or Keith actually go to New York City with a firearm? Assuming that we're assuming that we're going to follow all the new crazy laws, which we'll, well get they, to. They don't take effect until September first. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. But when can someone say, "I have my permit. It's been issued since 2000, whenever. I'm now going to New York City, and I'm in a place where I'm allowed to carry." Right. So that's going to be a great question. One of the things that was clear from this decision is that the states and presumably cities, have a right to require licenses. So there's nothing in this decision per se that said New York City cannot require their own license. Uh Now, what it says is that you don't need to show a reason to get that license. Now, New York City is an interesting place because the question is, are they going to grant what they call special carries, which is the kind of license you need if you have a license from another county and you want to carry in New York City? Are they going to grant special carries to people with no connection, no business connection, and no residence in New York City? Uh, I would say constitutionally, if it's a constitutional right to carry a gun outside the home for protection, how can they deny a U.S. citizen the right to apply for a special carry license? I think it would be at this point 
inadvisable to go down to the city with one because they don't think there's enough. It's not been sorted out. It hasn't been sorted right. out. But I, but I mean, at what point this has to get sorted out, right? So, you know, and even going further, at what point well, is it a situation I, 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 where you're allowed to carry somewhat of a national reciprocity where we've decided that you're allowed to have one, right? I think I think that's part of the problem already is, you know, it's it's not been all sorted out like we're talking about. And New York uh, legislation has already reacted to this ruling. Right. They've already, you know, put new laws that, that could, um, you know, uh, that, that I think are interpreted as a direct contradiction of what, what this ruling was supposed to protect. Um, you know, but I think what Peter's saying is, is, you you need a you need a permit to carry in New York City today. That has not changed, regardless of the ruling. And until they decide how they're going to handle that, it's it's still kind of in in play. They won't be able to deny you, uh, you know, if you don't live in in the city or carry a large amount of cash like they used like they were doing. Right. Um. But there all are all these other new laws that have now been passed that we have to deal with. So you know, Peter, I guess how. how when will they get overturned? <laughs> you well, know, can I tell you why it's so great to be a lawyer? Because, <laughs> well, because you have a constant flow of business right now. <laughs> and all that's going to happen now is we need a lot more new cases yeah. to file and more litigation, more attorneys getting paid yeah. to kind of figure out what this means. So you raise national concealed carry reciprocity. It seems to me that the logical, logical conclusion of what Justice Thomas said in the majority decision in the court's opinion on Bruin, was that this is a constitutional right. You have a constitutional right to carry a gun outside the home. Now, I've raised this issue many times. I may have raised it on the last show. If you have, if driving is a privilege, not a right, but a privilege, and you have a driver's license that's given full faith and credit in all 50 states, what possible justification is there in saying that a right to carry a gun a license to carry a gun, which is a constitutional right, is only good in one state and does not get full faith and credit in the other states. That's a good point. You could take that further because someone's going to say, well, in New York, our laws are X, Y, and Z, where in Utah, they're ABC. But the same goes with the driver's license, right? You There's have different laws. There's Absolutely. Different criteria. and But that's only a privilege. There's only one item in the world that our founding fathers deemed important enough that you had a constitutional right to possess it. You don't have a constitutional right to your home. You don't have a constitutional right to food. You have a constitutional right to carry a gun outside the home for your self-protection. Peter, I'm going to put you on hold for one second here. Joshua, are you in the room? I hope so. Oh, you yeah, are. Yeah, right. Wow. That's great. <laughs> so Joshua, Peter Tillum, Peter, Joshua Prince. We've met. Yes, we have. Well, that's good. Uh, makes it uh, makes it easy for this, um, Josh. We're just going to kind of get you right into it. Uh, I'm sure you're prepared for that as a lawyer. Um, we're we're talking about you know some of the new legislation that New York has already uh, passed in reaction to uh, the NYSERPA ruling, and um, how you know some of these laws, in my opinion, uh, are a direct in, you know contradiction of the ruling. And how long is it going to take to get those overturned? And, uh, you know, what's the process for getting them overturned? Well, obviously, there are a number of currently pending cases. So those cases probably will be decided the quickest. However, I know there are a number of new cases being filed currently based on the Bruin decision. So it really depends because 
federal court judges really determine their own dockets and how quickly they want to resolve matters or how much they want to sit on a matter. So it's going to be interesting to see how some of these cases do proceed. We do know that there were a number of cases that were pending before the U.S. Supreme Court that the U.S. Supreme Court basically GVR'd. Uh, basically, uh, they granted allowance of petition of appeal at, or certiorari and then vacated the lower court decisions and remanded them back to the lower courts for decisions consistent with Bruin. So I know, for example, in California, there is a current challenge that was pending before the U.S. Supreme Court in relation to assault weapon bans that they vacated the prior Ninth Circuit decision and remanded it back to the Ninth Circuit to now decide based on their decision in Bruin. So I think we will see a lot of those types of cases being decided in the near future. Also, I think there are a number of cases where the courts previously decided against challengers where, based on the federal rules of procedure, provided they have counsel who's aware of the Bruin decision and the rules of procedure, could petition to reopen those cases and have them basically redetermined based on the Bruin decision. But this, so, is, but this is going to take some time. Yeah, I, so I, I definitely do. I want to talk about those cases in a little bit. But so you mentioned, um, I believe it's insertiari. Yes. Can, can you explain what that is to the listeners and, and, our, and us? Because I've heard that many times, but I'd like to know more about what that means exactly, legally. So certiorari is Sorry. where you petition the U.S. Supreme Court to, uh, in essence, consider whether they'll even hear a case. So there is no right to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's based on a decision of the U.S. Supreme Court as to whether they want to hear any particular case. And the supermajority of cases where there is a petition for sarsharari uh, filed with the U.S. Supreme Court, they never hear. Uh, They decline to hear. So that's basically... Uh, what certiorari is, is a request to the U.S. Supreme Court to hear a particular matter, and the U.S. Supreme Court will issue a decision whether or not to hear it. If they decide to hear it, then a briefing order will issue, as well as an oral argument order, uh, and the case will proceed consistent with those orders. I, I that, that helps me. Thank you. Uh, Peter, I, I want to kind of go back to these, this new, uh, some of this new legislation, and it, they talked, um, one of the laws is that there will be some training requirements now for, for permit holders. And uh, not, let me first start by saying, I believe any gun owner should be proficient with their firearms. I feel that everyone should train with them. However, um, the requirement of training is a little um, suspect to me. Can, In your opinion, is that now something that every permit holder is going to have to do when they renew? Or is it just new permit right. people getting their permits, which is how I've interpreted there, it. But. There is a footnote in the Bruin decision that essentially says that nothing in the Second Amendment prohibits a uh, state from requiring what they refer to as passive training. Now, New York, of course, hears passive training, and they do the opposite. <laughs> they, they say, okay, 15 to 20 hours, uh, we need live fire, 
And uh, notwithstanding the fact, by the way, that it's a felony in New York to touch a gun until you get the license. Right. But they want you to do live fire. See, I think that that Joshua just said something so important. And we have to understand the full extent of this decision. Right. Okay. because this when they went over the standard and they talked about the fact that the Second Amendment applies to every bearable arm. And it's a right to carry a weapon outside the home for self-defense. Well, they, when they remanded back, when they vacated these decisions and remanded back, they remanded, remanded back a New Jersey uh, magazine capacity limit of 10 rounds. That was vacated and said re-brewing and re-decided. There was an assault weapon ban in Maryland that was also uh, remanded and sent back. So I think what we're going to see in the coming weeks and months is that essentially uh, AR-15 bans, assault weapon bans are going out the window. Magazine capacity bans are going to be uh, are going to be overturned. And so there is now a very high standard that was articulated for sustaining new regulation. What what? It's just going to take time. Justice Thomas said was that essentially he doesn't believe any branch of government, not even the judiciary, has the right to tell a citizen that they their Second Amendment rights can be infringed. Yeah. And he doesn't want judges deciding that. Right, right. So, I mean, let, let's look at where we're at right now, right? So we, we have the decision come down and other states like Massachusetts, California, New Jersey – which are all very restrictive states, they've all been able to take that decision. And of course, some stuff came out of New Jersey. I was going to say, New Jersey. But but they all took the decision. And one of the first things they did was they reacted in a way in which it was intended. A lot of them made the statement that they must now issue permits. Right. um, That it's now legal to do that and that it shall issue. But for some reason, New York, merely doubled down on this. I, they were the first one to come out swinging, um, really in a very temper tantrum sort of a way. <laughs> I, I really was. I mean, you know, I heard... Um, I, I, I think it's an I think it's an acceptable opinion for no, sure. No, I, I mean, mean I, I heard... Um, I laugh at it because that's what we're saying. You know, yeah. we're, we're saying that the people who run our, our state are acting like children. Kathy Oko has made clear that she wants to do it. She wants to be the first. Yeah. She's not putting emphasis on That's being right. She, was the second she wanted long. to be the first. She said it after the Uvalde in Buffalo shooter shootings, and she passed those 10 new gun laws uh, that recently came down. And now she wanted to be the first after Bruin. And the fact is that they made a lot of mistakes. And in fact, this uh, whole body armor thing, they actually closed one of the mistakes they made <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in this recent batch of litigation, yeah. uh, of legislation. They, they left out the, They left out soft body armor. So, well, they left out yeah. soft body armor, which, I'm sorry, they, no, they included soft body armor. They left oh, out the, hard the, body the, armor, sorry, which is yeah. what the Buffalo shooter was wearing. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that's, so that is that, is that now out the window too? Is that, That's now out the window. But let's, let's just keep in mind that it's only the sale of these items in New York that's illegal. You can buy it in New Jersey and drive it across the border. Right. It's only the sale. It's not the possession. The other issue I'd like just to interject is the fact that, we have states as well as local municipalities that go forth knowingly violate the Second Amendment and the jurisprudence we have because they know at the end of the day they're 
is no ramifications for them. Yeah. They're, they are spending taxpayer money with enacting these illegal ordinances, laws, whatever they are, depending on whether it's the state government or local municipalities. And they know, except for in Florida, that there's no harm in doing it. They get to just spend the taxpayer's money. Now, in Florida, with their preemption statute there, they imposed individual liability on any uh, officer of a municipality that basically approves of and supports in enactment an ordinance that violates their state preemption statute. But beyond Florida, I'm not aware of any other state that does that. So there is no, in essence, stick uh, that, you know, one can use to ensure that these individuals aren't continually violating the either constitutional rights or statutory rights that are enacted either under state or federal constitutions or state statutory law. And, you, and that's extremely concerning to me. You are so right. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Joshua, because I actually want to ask you because you, so Peter, you have a whole different set of issues you have to deal with as a Second Amendment lawyer in New York than Joshua. So Joshua, you living and practicing in a state where, for the most part, I think your rights are much, much more free in Pennsylvania than New York. But- you do have two very large cities in your state that can influence politics, obviously. And do you feel as a uh, attorney practicing in a more free state, like we're good to go? Or do you feel a constant barrage of threat because stuff like this kind of trickles downhill, so to speak? No, it's a constant barrage of threat. And we've seen it consistently, regardless of even the Pennsylvania Supreme Court having previously decided that our state preemption statute prevents any local form of government from regulating firearms and ammunition. And we see day in and day out, especially Philadelphia, as I call it, as well as Pittsburgh, enacting all these un unlawful, illegal ordinances. Uh, and beyond that, it's actually a violation of our crimes code for any municipality to enact an ordinance that regulates firearms or ammunition, yet we can't get a single district attorney to prosecute the individuals involved in regulating these ordinances. Yeah, I ask that question because I feel it's important because we have listeners in Texas, we have listeners in, you know, you name the state, and they're much more free states. And I often get the, you know, well, you don't like the gun laws in New York, we'll move. And I, I always say... <laughs> Oh, the, they'll come to you too. Don't you know, we're like we're a cautionary tale here. You know, like don't just think because you're in a freer state that they won't come after your gun rights because they will. And so I'm glad that you said that. Yeah, I, and uh, again, I deal deal with it day in and day out. And in fact, I currently have no less than five different preemption cases currently pending in the appellate courts because of the fact, especially. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh think that they can do whatever they want. And they figure, you know, it doesn't matter to us because either we have our own law department to litigate these matters or to the extent we don't and we have to pay outside counsel. Yeah, it's all taxpayer money. Yeah. So truly, at the end of the day, what it becomes for Second Amendment organizations is death by a thousand cuts because we have to keep funding all of this litigation to fight against the anti-gun 
municipalities and state organizations that have all of the taxpayer revenue at their disposal. I I just, I'm having such a difficult time, and this is sort of a rhetorical question, so neither one even necessarily have to answer it. Um, But it's just, I I don't understand why it's acceptable, and I'm going to try to leave labels off of it, to for new new yorkers to require other new yorkers that are willing to take the responsibility to protect themselves and and not allow that right and instead you know force those individuals to have to wait for the police to arrive you know i i guess the real question is you know has our legal system just not even just the legal system i shouldn't say but has the three branches of government in totality gotten so large that it's just gone way away from the, our core government framework. And the best, what makes me think of this question, you know, to you guys, and Peter, I'll go to you first, but what makes you, me ask the question is, has our government just gotten too big is Ben Franklin's last constitutional convention speech. If you, neither of you have read it, I re- highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite speeches. Somebody passed it to me a few years back. And basically Ben Franklin says, this is as good as it's going to get. It'll last about 250 years. <laughs> And then it'll go to shit, so to speak. <laughs> so here we are, and I feel like it's to shit. So is that is that a fair statement? Look, you know, it's interesting for me to hear uh, Joshua whine about his preemption statute. I wish I had a preemption statute. <laughs> no, so look, the government is too large. Look at what happened in Uvalde. Yeah. Uvalde, the police turned on the victims, on the parents of the victims. <laughs> I know. And used physical force. Wouldn't allow them to go protect their children. A woman got Not a- only wouldn't they protect the children, but they used physical force to prevent the parents uh, from the story, protecting the children. The story so, about the woman who got arrested convinced another cop to let her out of the cuffs, and then she climbed a fence and went in there and saved her children. She's like my hero. Right. So I, I think Uvalde tells you everything you need to know. Yeah. yeah. I, I just can't, I, I'm just having such a hard time with that these days. And what I really, what I really think this is going to do, and, and Mike, I'm sort of combining a couple of my questions here together, but we'll make it through it. I, I just feel like this division that we're experiencing is heading towards a place where it's just going to end up with these individual states and you're just going to live in a state that kind of fits your political beliefs and you'll just... You know, we'll just be, be separated by. You mean not United States? Not you, United States. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's what I just feel like we're heading. Yeah. You know? But I do believe if you look at the overall decision in Bruin, I believe we're heading to national concealed carry reciprocity. I think that the that the states will go kicking and screaming. I don't think I don't think the other side can handle that, Pete. Uh, you know what they 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 couldn't handle uh, the the abolition of Roe v. Wade or the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but they're going to have to deal with it. They couldn't handle uh, Bruin, and uh, look, I think they're going to react very poorly. And I expect that a federal judge will probably issue a stay, uh, barring them from putting in effect these new laws that they just passed. Uh, they're going to have to deal with it because we're a country of laws. That's right. We're a country that's ruled by a constitution. Right. And elections have consequences. And these, those two, these two things that we're talking that you're talking, and I don't, I don't want to bring Roe versus Wade in too much here, but it, just in context of what what we're talking about here, we're talking about two. You're talking. We're saying two cases here. One that's protected by the constitution. One that has been given the power back to the people. 
The best part, the best part of last week had to be watching Kathy Hochul on Thursday screaming that how dare the Supreme Court not allow New Yorkers to make this decision for themselves. Yeah. And then, and then the very next day, she was screaming about how dare the Supreme Court allow the citizens to make the decision for themselves. I, so, uh, you know, it's funny you're talking about about her in particular, because I read something the other day that was talking about our founders. And what it basically was saying was the idea that our founding fathers envisioned a government that was as small and as restrained as humanly possible, and that the power really was there on a very minimal basis because the power was given to the people, as you just just said. And we've gotten so far away from that. And you know, you give an inch, they take a mile, sort of a thing. We have given them so much power that you know, once you give it up, it's hard to get it back. And so, you know, when I look at when I look at this, it really is we uh, as well. We, it's really the, uh, us, the people that have done this. But we're so divided. So one half likes to give it, and the other side doesn't want to give it. And we're literally, literally registered voters wise, fifty fifty. We are split. Yeah, but there's a whole bunch that are not registered. But we're and, very close to 50-50. and the, that middle that middle ground doesn't make a choice. Yeah. Well, they do, but they they waver depending on the case, right? So, um, you know, one of the, going back to the decision, you know, one of the biggest wins in this decision seems to be the removal of the two step framework and requiring lower courts to make future Second Amendment decisions based on history and tradition. And the way I've always understood it is, I've always heard the word strict, more strict scrutiny. Yeah, I don't Peter, know if that's, I think you touched on this. Yeah, he touched on it earlier. I don't know if strict scrutiny and basing on history and tradition are exactly the same thing. But uh, Joshua, I'll go to you. Can you explain to us uh, in legal terms why this is so important or why you think this is so important? Sure. And I've argued in all of my Second Amendment cases that there really is no interest balancing that was supposed to apply consistent with Heller and McDonald. And Every federal judge that I know of, whether it were in my cases or in other cases, always decided, nope, I was wrong. It, there had to be some interest, interest balancing that applied. And sure enough, now in Bruin, the U.S. Supreme Court says, yeah, hey, look, exactly as we told you both in Heller and McDonald, there is no interest balancing here. The interest balancing was when we ratified the Second Amendment. That was the interest balancing. Mm. And so uh, there, there is not going to be these tiers of scrutiny that apply because that is really only applies in the second step if a second step existed. And generally speaking, even in that context where there would be a second step, if strict scrutiny applies, there are very, very, very few cases where – uh, the U.S. Supreme Court found that a law could survive strict scrutiny. So we we basically got to take a step back and say, OK, we don't even have this interest balancing that's going to apply because the interest balancing already exists in what the Second Amendment is. So all we need to look to is at the time of ratification of the Second Amendment and the, there is some question in the Bruin decision as to whether it's the ratification of the Second Amendment or the 14th Amendment, and they say that they aren't going to address that in Bruin. And quite honestly, I can't foresee how in the future the U.S. Supreme Court could say that the 
analysis applies to when the 14th Amendment uh, was enacted uh, for the states, but the Second Amendment in relation to the federal government, because that's a, a very complex analysis that I, I just don't foresee the court entering into. And I think the proper analysis that the Supreme Court will in the future hold, if necessary, is that it's whether there existed any type of uh, similar regulation at the time of ratification of the Second Amendment. And when we look to the time frame that the court basically uh, supports for purposes of determining whether there is a similar um, law or regulation at the time of ratification of the Second Amendment, we see very little. And one of the biggest issues, I guess, that will exist into the future with regards to all Second Amendment litigation is the fact that the court has seemingly endorsed or supported certain restrictions that were not in existence at the time of founding or shortly thereafter. So we see them saying it seems to us that, you know, restrictions on government buildings in certain sensitive places would be constitutional. Yet, if we look back at the time of founding, you won't find any corollary laws or regulations. So that aspect of the Bruin decision is slightly concerning to me. However, the remainder of it would suggest that a plethora of the laws that currently exist would be unconstitutional. And I can even give an example of one of the cases that we're currently handling is a situation where we have an individual in Pennsylvania who's of the Amish faith who is being charged criminally for the sale of firearms without a federal firearms license. Well, at the time of founding, there was never uh, any understanding or belief that the government could regulate in any way, shape, or form the sale of firearms, let alone require licensing for it. Yeah, it's very interesting. So uh, I, I think there are going to be a lot of very interesting issues that arise in regard to that case in particular, especially when then uh, you fold into it the First Amendment issues and the fact that his religious beliefs, based on the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives regulations, preclude him from being able to obtain a federal firearms license because his religious beliefs preclude him from having his photo taken. Wow. Wow. Okay. So it's not just a second amendment issue. It's also a first amendment issue. Sure. Yeah. And I, I really think that these types I just became Amish are, are really going to percolate through the court systems and could have a profound impact. I've done a lot of second amendment as applied litigation in relation to prohibited persons. And I do believe the Bruin decision could have a substantial impact on the Gun Control Act and those prohibited person categories. Interesting. So uh, one more follow-up, and then Keith, I know you have had something you wanted to ask. So when we talk about the that two-step approach, that basically was, or intermediate scrutiny, was basically saying that if the state has some interest in protecting the people, they could limit uh firearms and they could they could they could make limitation reasonable limitations where when we go to this 
uh, history and tradition or strict scrutiny. It's more of what has typically been the way in which things have been interpreted. So my question, and uh, Peter, I'll, I'll let you take this one. My question is, we live in a very liberal state. We have very liberal judges. What's to say that they don't just say, I don't believe in that, and this is the way I'm ruling, and you know, I, I am using strict scrutiny. I'm just interpreting it the way that I interpret it. So what is our protection here? Right. So it's, it's a great question. And obviously, one of the concerns has been a judiciary that really is results-oriented, uh, really backs into the decision. They know what the outcome they want is, and then they figure out how to justify it. Correct. And so that that's a big concern. But look, I think that to a certain extent, Clarence Thomas really called out the judiciary in the way they interpreted the Second Amendment in the, in the years after Heller. So I think to a certain extent, when you look at what Governor Hochul did in direct uh, opposition uh, to what the Supreme Court said, I think there's an issue of vindicating the federal judiciary. I think the federal judiciary, the federal judges, the district court judges, and the Second Circuit have an opportunity now to say, okay, we're a country of laws, and we have our direction from the Supreme Court, and we're going to follow that direction. I I don't believe the, the Second Circuit will uh, ignore the binding precedent that was laid out by the Supreme Court. Now, whether individual federal judges do, I don't know. But I think going back to uh, what Josh was talking about, the question that they're going to have to ask almost immediately and the question that the judges are going to have to answer almost immediately is, at the time of the ratification of the Second Amendment in 1791, was there an understanding? Was it generally understood that the Second Amendment included, well, you can't, obviously, everyone knows you can't carry a gun outside your home unless you completed 15 to 20 hours of training, including live fire. And of course, the answer is no. On that one, I agree, Pete, but I, I also agree with Josh that, 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 this idea that you can't carry in Times Square, for example, like there have been those type of laws before 1791. But not Times Square. Like, not it, Times it, Square it, particularly. Traditionally, it was government buildings. It was, you know, right. places of worship. No, but I think that's the point that where I was going with this is it's that concern that Joshua mentioned that we've all kind of talked about tonight in the in Clarence Thomas's opinion that is the impetus of, of, of New York being able to feel like they can pass the laws that they've passed. Well, I think New York went well beyond what the Supreme Court... Look, New York raised this in the oral arguments, and I listened to the oral arguments quite carefully. They, they discussed uh, Times Square. They said that Times Square... Specifically. Specifically. Right. And they said Times Square was not a, uh, a, a, Correct. a place that would be considered a sensitive place under the Constitution. They said, with exception of New Year's Eve, I believe. Yes. Right. So, you know, which I could, what which does I could New York understand. do? New York is told, don't do it. And they do it anyway. New York is told, okay, passive training is okay. Okay, we're going to require 20 hours of active live fire shooting. I, I've mentioned this on the show. There's not enough, there is not enough physical, active, open ranges with with certified trainers to be able to train the uh, the amount of hours it would take for the amount of current permit holders that there are. I don't think it's current permits though. Just just one clarify. I think it's for permit 
going forward to apply for a permit. No, is, I don't even think they could support the amount of people that currently have permits. And if they were required to have their own annual training, I agree with what the decision is that we, we interpret the decision as it's only going forward. Yes, correct. But if it was not going forward, if it was all permanent holders, there's not enough. Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. I agree. Yeah. Listen, I, I think that when, when New York is told what they can do and what they can't do, and then they do the opposite. Yeah. I think that, that you now have an issue of do, do judges matter? Does the judiciary matter or not? And if the judiciary matters, they're going to have to assert themselves and they're going to have to immediately. Uh, and I imagine there will be challenges to this new law immediately and they should issue a statewide injunction preventing the enforcement of this new statute until it can be litigated because the presumption is going to be that these laws are not going to be acceptable. They're going to be unconstitutional. There were many Second Amendment cases that have been remanded back to the lower courts. Josh you guys, was talking about yep, this. Yep, Josh already talked about them. So we had, there's a New Jersey assault weapons ban. There's uh, Bonta v. Becerra, which is the, they, w- they want to remove the stay uh, for the assault weapons bans in California. And then there's the Bianchi Frosch case from uh, Maryland, which is also an assault weapons ban case. So we have all of these cases that are being remanded down to lower courts. So my question is, uh, especially in these assault weapons cases, like, uh, actually, I believe it was uh, Miller v. Bonta was the assault weapons case. How does that favorably assist us in other parts of the country? Right? So if a decision comes out of the Ninth Circuit that... Um, Miller v. Bonta, that they they turn that down. It's not that's not going to you know hold legal challenge. What does that do for let's say someone on the East Coast? Does it affect us, or is it just more legal precedents that down the road we could use in our favor? Joshua, why don't you take that one? Well, that's just it. It isn't precedent that is binding on any court that doesn't sit within the Ninth Circuit. It is just persuasive authority. So. In essence, we end up having to litigate it. And of course, you have states like New York that are hoping to get different precedent out of the Second Circuit to cause that precedent uh, split, which may cause the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case. Um, So unfortunately, it has no effect whatsoever unless you're within a state that is covered by that particular circuit Circuit, court. And, you know, it's extremely frustrating to me because I have seen over the past decade the judiciary become far more political than it ever was. Sure. Yeah. And and now we're seeing the judiciary basically act as the political wing of the, you know, legislative body and or the the executive body. And it's extremely concerning and. Uh, It it goes far beyond that because if we even delve into Chevron deference and administrative agencies now, we have these administrative agencies that encompass all three branches of government because not only do they make the law, they're enforcing the law, and now the judiciary that's supposed to be independent is giving deference to them. So. They are all three branches, and I I do truly hope uh, in the near future that we will see the end to Chevron deference. And based on some of the comments we've seen from some of the U.S. Supreme Court justices, it seems like that maybe in the next term 
will be an issue that they will decide. And I'm hopeful that in relation to some of our bump stock litigation, uh, that will be case law that will percolate down and end all of Chevron deference. So what is Chevron deference? Can you explain that? Yeah, basically for for lay people, it's the idea that administrative bodies uh, have a, a specific knowledge set that is supposed to be given deference. So for most of the listeners, they're probably aware of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. The idea, it's an administrative agency that is uh, specifically designed to regulate you know, yes, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and explosives. So it's supposed to have a specific knowledge set related thereto, and that they should be able to ena- basically enact these different regulations related to the Gun Control Act, the National Firearms Act, to carry out the Congress's will. The problem that we've seen is now that they believe they can go above and beyond, redefine terms that the Congress has enacted and basically enact brand new law that the Congress never enacted and which the Congress can't get passed through its own legislative body. And and as an example, I give bump stocks. We've seen that after the Las Vegas shooting, there were a lot of calls on Congress to enact a law that basically made bump stocks illegal Congress did not act because it did not have enough votes. And as a result, we had an executive fiat from uh, basically President Trump directing the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives to find that bump stocks were machine guns. Now, anyone who knows anything about a bump stock knows that it's two levels removed from the definition enacted by the Congress uh, of what constitutes a machine gun. But nevertheless, now we have a regulation in place that provides that bump stocks are machine guns. And that's right. one of the cases that we're currently litigating. And 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 the Supreme Court to uh, talk about or, or to decide that in the next term really would be putting some limits in those in those uh, agencies and being able to do that is really what you're talking about, right? Correct. Yeah. The idea is that the courts are supposed to be an independent body. They shouldn't be giving deference to any executive or legislative body in determining what is the law. It's and, almost it's almost sounding like, you know, it gave me hearing you talk about it almost gave me like a little bit of a hope that this large government that we're talking about and some of these agencies are part of what we're talking sure. about here that the fact that maybe those could start to be restricted shrink you know, a little bit. Maybe Ben Franklin was wrong. Maybe. maybe. I I mean the you know the other thing here so the question I asked was about uh you know decisions in the Ninth Circuit how it would affect uh, those of us in the Second Circuit. I feel I feel like you know, you could see something in California get jostled and then New Jersey could get, you know, knocked down a peg and then Maryland gets knocked down a peg. And if enough of that happens, it would give uh, enough enough momentum where someone would do a legal challenge against a New York safe factor or something like that. And they just would be like dominoes falling. Is that sort of a good analogy to use? You know, Peter, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a great analogy. But, you know, again, we... Yeah. I think the concern is the politicized judiciary that uh, Joshua mentioned. Uh, we talk about it filtering down to places like New York, 
We have uh, the Caetano case, which is, I think, one of the most important Second Amendment cases we've had before Bruin, which is the one in Massachusetts that says uh, that basically said you can't uh, ban stun guns. And then uh, there's a case up in uh, the Northern District of New York that says that follows Caetano and says you can't ban stun guns. I had a guy arrested with a stun gun. Uh, in Staten Island, in New York City, I moved to dismiss it, and the judge denied my motion uh, because there was no binding Southern District precedent, and the case was only handled in the Northern District, <laughs> uh, which was only persuasive. So this is going to take time, yeah. and we really need to um, we need to file lawsuits. Uh, we need to file them quickly, and we need to file a lot of them. So. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Peter. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, so I guess I'm going to ask you a, 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 an opinion question from for, as an attorney. So this isn't going to get resolved by September 1st. These new laws that we're, we're talking about in New York, uh, Josh, you don't have to deal with those. Lucky you. Um, we, we're going to have to follow them. Is that really like when I go to a restaurant now with my kids and my family, I'm going to just have to not carry and right. Chili's serves alcohol. So I guess so, you can't eat in Chili's anymore, Keith. I, well, I, I mean, is that really what I'm looking at, Peter? Well, I, I, I firmly believe that we're going to get a statewide stay. Yeah, I, I believe a lawsuit will be filed and, and we'll get a statewide injunction. But uh, look, for people that like, like you and I that had gun licenses prior to this, Yes, I mean basically we're gonna we could be worse off than we, we were before Bruin. I think we are. I think we. I think we are. Uh, I didn't. I didn't want to come back from vacation from the state that I was in. I'll tell you that. So I heard something the other day that's along these lines, Keith. Um, Judge Napolitano, who's you know yeah, you, Fox, you, had, you had talked to me a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So he had done a quick little video, and he had said that he felt as early as Monday, which was Fourth of July, so it wasn't going to happen Monday, but let's say Tuesday. He's wrong. Right. Uh, <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, you know, the that the uh, the courts would be, and I'm using the term enjoined, to basically, what I'm assuming is put a stay in place that these laws have to be decided and that things are going to be status quo until then. Is, is that correct? Like, that's what would happen is that they would basically say, you know, you can't do this until a decision is made? Uh, I mean, that would be my hope. And that's what I expect. Uh, these laws are so far out there. I mean, the idea that you're going to put a burden on private businesses that they're going to have to expend money to yeah. allow people to carry in their premises rather than the default be, okay, uh, you can carry in private businesses unless they're banned. The, the default is you cannot carry a gun into a private business unless there's a sign that affirmatively notifies you that yeah. you were permitted to carry a gun on those premises. Yeah, you have to presume. You have to presume and, if there's and, no sign that it's not. And welcome. how unfair is that to a business? Like you're putting them in a spot where they have to sort of put yeah. their own beliefs on the line and maybe alienate customers. And it just it's wrong in so many ways. Well, it's wrong in so many ways. And isn't it a First Amendment issue? In other words, now the government is making you say something that maybe you don't feel like yes. saying, maybe you don't want to say for whatever reason. <laughs> for whatever reason, because. You want people to be able to exercise their Second Amendment rights. Maybe you just want to have your beliefs, and maybe you want to let the guy across the street from you who's also an American have his beliefs, and the girl who's across the street have her beliefs. Maybe you just want to have, let everyone have their own beliefs and just go about life. But no, now you got to wear your scarlet letter. Now you got to say, I'm okay with, with, with guns. And, I, you know, I, it's... 
I'm just amazed at how something that was exactly what all of us have talked about. Joshua, we talked about it with you. Peter, we talked about it with you. You know, as what the best case ruling turned into what feels like a retaliation to the legal gun owner. Exactly what it is. I, I'm just I'm I'm just amazed that I'm here. I I don't even know. And you know, we're talking about Hulkle an awful lot, and I I try not to. You know, I think Mike, we do a pretty good job at trying not to make this too pick a side kind of show. We try to be you know? conscientious. And but it's hard when you have our governor saying things like when when being challenged about how what data did she use to come up with this this rule? And she says, "I don't need data." Well, do you guys get to walk into a courtroom and not be able to show data? It's crazy. Well, and it's hard to believe, but she was endorsed by the NRA when she ran for Congress. Oh, oh, I'm not surprised just, there. I, I, I think it shows you how dishonest, disingenuous these people are, that she used to be Miss Pro-Gun, endorsed by the NRA uh, when she needed their money, and she thought it would help her. And now she, she thinks it won't help her, and so now she's doing this. Well, I don't. Wayne, Wayne probably didn't know what he was signing off on at that time. But I mean, listen. One of the problems, and we're talking about her, and we're talking about all this stuff. But one of the problems that I see is we're getting mass shooting after mass shooting. Yeah. And you know, the media is no friend in terms of. Well, I, I'd say the media in some ways isn't a friend of the American people, but that's a whole other thing. They're they're pushing what they want to push, and they're suppressing what they want to suppress, and. I'm what I'm afraid of is even I even know gun owners that every time these things happen, one of these tragedies happens, the media bombards you enough where you start to go, well, you know, maybe red flag laws would be a solution. Maybe, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe we should have mandatory training. Maybe we should have expanded back. And yeah. people who I know who are, I'm saying people, I rationalize with no guns in Times Square on New Year's Eve, yeah, you know, like that's yeah. what happens. And so I feel like I'm very worried that as these shootings happen more and more, that we're just going to thank God for Clarence Thomas because I think he really set a standard that's going to protect us in many ways, as both of you are saying. But every time one of these things happens, it's going to be you know one step back backwards before we can move forward again. Well, you know the other thing too, and and Peter Joshua, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking with us. I'm, we're not necessarily ending it, but I, I'm going to take my opportunity to thank you now. Um, I think having conversations like this with with both of you who understand the process is is good and healthy because there is so much uh, out there when I talk to individuals who just really do not understand the process. We've yeah. just lost you know what our rights are, what the process is supposed to be, how our government is supposed to work, and we're relying on uh, the media just saying just pay attention to this. I'll tell you what you need to know. Yeah. And other than that, you don't need to know anything. Well, you mentioned the whole, uh, I don't need data. I want to say good on that reporter. I think it was CBS. I don't remember exactly, but it was, the reporter asked the question, are you, are law-abiding permit holders the ones who are committing these crimes? Do you have that data? And I said, boy, that's a really good question from a, what I feel was a very honest reporter. And she just shot. So even when a reporter does their job and asks a fair question. The only thing I will give her credit for, Hochul credit for, is her actually saying, I don't need it. Yeah, at least care. at least she said, I don't need it. Right. You know, like, She admitted she's a tyrant. Is right. that what you're yeah. trying to say? I, that's I mean. what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so uh, guys, before I, I'm going to start to close this out here in a second. But first thing I would like to say is uh, for people that are listening, uh, I hope that there was value here. I hope that you know the, these two legal minds were able to clear some things up and give some really good 
opinions on where the future of this is going to go. Uh, we will, it's going to take some time. We know that, um, I'll formally close that in a minute, but I thought I would like to give each of you the mic independently to kind of give your, your wrap up thoughts. Um, Joshua, why don't we go to you? Uh, the mic is yours. You can say anything you'd like to say in terms of, you know, this discussion. And then when, when you're done, give it to Peter. Awesome. Uh, I, I kind of want to go back to something that was said a, a minute ago about Justice Thomas and the fact that I think too few people realize that he will not likely be on the court for a significant period of time. He's stated several times that he does not intend to die while being a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. And I think too few people realize that but for President Trump, it is unlikely that the Bruin decision would have ever been issued. In fact, I I think that it's next to an impossibility based on what the makeup of the court would have been uh, absent Trump uh, that we would have seen anything like the Bruin decision. I also think it's important to realize, based on the recent Roe decision, that any of these Supreme Court decisions are only ever one decision away from being overruled. Correct. And that is extremely concerning to me, especially when we're talking about a constitutional right that is specified in the Constitution. There is a reason why our founding fathers codified what the Bruin decision acknowledged was a pre-existing right. And there was a substantial debate by our founding fathers as to why they'd even need to codify the first 10 amendments in the Constitution because everyone just generally accepted and knew that they existed. Can you imagine... If we found ourselves here today with our founding fathers not having ratified the first 10 amendments, and I'm not just saying in simply the context of the second amendment, but can you imagine where our country would be in relation to the first amendment, second amendment, fourth amendment, fifth amendment, sixth amendment? It's, a mind-boggling wonder of where our country could be today had our founding fathers not insisted on uh, ratifying those, you know, amendments to the Constitution. And I, I think it's it's very concerning, uh, given where we find ourselves today, and the fact that. Many believe it acceptable to simply write off or basically obliterate those constitutional provisions that are so important to our society as a republic. Um, I, I think people just take it for granted and never really consider it. And I know there are many that espouse the belief that the Constitution was intended to be a living, breathing document. And I can tell you there's one very simple question you can ask to any of them that they will be unable to answer. And that is simply, if our founding fathers 
intended the Constitution to be a living, breathing document that would simply evolve with time, why did they provide for an amendment process? Mm. It'd be wholly unnecessary. The Constitution would simply evolve. Yeah. It's very, it's a very good well point. said. Those espousing that don't want to acknowledge that because then it undermines their whole argument. And so I, I just want all the listeners to realize how important elections are, how important it is to support our Constitution and to never lose hope in it. And, you know, beyond everything, I, I know there are a lot of trials and tribulations we all go through in relation to our rights, where we become very concerned because of uh, political positions of the judiciary. But at the end of the day, the Constitution specifies those uh, pre-existing rights that were merely codified in it. And I do truly believe that they are inalienable and inviolate, and they are exempted out of the powers of the Congress to regulate. Very well said. Thank you very much. With that, I give it to Peter to, to give his closing thoughts. Thank you. So, listen, I'm an optimistic guy, and I believe in America. I believe in our system of justice. I believe in the courts, and I believe the best is yet to come. I think the decision that came down in Bruin gives the courts the uh, power and essentially requires the courts to apply a test that is going to knock down so many of these absolutely absurd and ridiculous regulations and laws that we've been saddled with over the past uh, 10, 20, 30 years. I think that uh, assault weapon bans are going to be very short-lived. I expect a decision very, very soon uh, from Maryland that's going to uh, throw out Maryland's assault weapon ban. I believe New Jersey and New York bans will be next. I believe that we will be uh, given proper carry rights in New York. I do not think these new laws will stand. And I do believe that the direction we're heading is not only shall issue uh, in all 50 states, but that we'll have national concealed carry reciprocity so that we can carry our guns between states. Because if you have a constitutional right to carry a gun, to protect yourself outside the home, then that has to apply when you travel also. So I'm optimistic this is going to be a hard fought, uh, but this Bruin case uh, really jumps us far ahead in, uh, in reclaiming our rights. Uh, now is the time to litigate. Now is the time to fight. And I think that we're going to be successful and the best is yet to come. Well, I like your optimism and from your lips to God's ears for sure. So <laughs> thank you for that. Well, God is in charge. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we have his uh, assistance. I, I agree wholeheartedly. So uh, Peter, Joshua, I want to thank you both for coming on and sharing your collective knowledge and expertise of the Second Amendment law in general. 
as well as your thoughts on this particular case. The analysis you've provided tonight is extremely valuable and we're grateful to have you as friends of the show. Anyone looking for sound legal advice, be sure to check out their websites. They'll be listed in our show notes. And to everyone listening, we want to thank you again for taking time out of your day to listen to our show. You can find links in the show notes to all of our social media, so be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Discord so we can keep the conversation going. Gentlemen, I want to thank you one last time. Again, it is a pleasure to have you back, and we hope to have you on again soon.